days of Jesus' life on earth, He offered up prayers and petitions with fervent cries and tears to the One who could save Him from death, and He was heard because of His reverent submission. Son though He was, He learned obedience from what He suffered. Charles and Emma had a beautiful daughter. Her name was Annie. And Annie was the delight of their eyes. They had several other children, but they described Annie as one of those charismatic children that just seemed to bring happiness into wherever place she went. Just seemed to be one of those kinds of kids that always had a smile on her face, always was excited about life, and they just thought that she was, she was wonderful. At about age 10, Annie was stricken with scarlet fever. Annie battled scarlet fever for several months and eventually died. And it changed the way Charles thought. In fact, as you read the biographer's notes about Charles's life, you read that they suggest that it was at the point when Annie died that Charles's idea of a God changed. His idea simply changed in that he thought there could not possibly be an all-powerful, all-loving God who could let my brilliant, wonderful, enthusiastic daughter die. Charles Darwin, after his daughter's death, of course, later went on to write on the origin of species by natural selection. It's been one of the most widely published books in the world. And if you were to ask what particular book has had more of a negative impact on the faith of people around the globe, now I believe you would be hard-pressed to find a book that would have done more damage than Charles Darwin's On the Origin of Species that he put out in 1859, several years after the death of his daughter. You see, there's an idea that if there is such a powerful and a loving God, then how in the world can God let some of the things happen that happen? And Charles Darwin, because of the loss of his daughter, lost his faith in God. You see, the only degree that Charles Darwin ever earned in his life was a degree in theology. He had what amounts to a Bible degree. And yet, his idea of the world changed when he lost his daughter. It's the idea of evil pain and suffering. The idea that if there's a loving God, and if that God is all-powerful, then He should do something about all of the things that happen in this world. It's not a new idea. In fact, it was around hundreds, really thousands of years before Charles Darwin. It was presented by a man named Epicurus. In about the 3rd century B.C., a Greek philosopher, Epicurus, said, there are three propositions, three ideas that can't all be true. He said, number one, there is an all-loving God. Number two, that God is all-powerful. And number three, evil exists. He said, either God is all-loving, but He can't do anything about the evil that exists. He wishes He could, but He just can't. Now, most of you have never considered that idea, but 
Harold Kushner, the man who wrote the book Man's Search for Meaning, basically bought into that idea. And he said, well, yeah, there is an loving God and he really wishes he could help you, but he's struggling through this world with you and he'll be right beside you, but he just can't stop it. If he could, he would, but he can't. He said either there's an all-loving God and he just doesn't have the power to do anything about it. Or there's an all-powerful God and he doesn't really care that much about you. He sees what you're going through and it doesn't really bother him that much. He could stop it if he wanted, but he doesn't. Or he said evil doesn't exist. Now what he said was we all know evil, pain, and suffering exist, so one of those other two ideas has to be wrong. And that's what he said in about 300 B.C. Now from that time till this, most people who don't believe in God go to this idea of the problem of evil, pain, and suffering and they use it most often to challenge the idea of the God of the Bible. In fact, I debated a man by the name of Dan Barker back in 2009 and he said when you look at the problem of evil, pain, and suffering, you can know that there is not a God. In fact, he said just go into any children's hospital any children's hospital across the country and you look at the pain and suffering that those innocent children are going through and you can know there is not a God. I dare say, if you're honest, you would probably be able to think of times in your life where either you were going through some terrible emotional or physical pain or someone you loved was going through some terrible emotional physical pain and you were wondering, God, why? Where are you when I'm suffering like this? Why aren't you stepping in to help me? Why are you letting me go through this? All of us have had challenges like that. Dan Barker says when you see one of those challenges, you can just know there's not a God. The fact of the matter is he's wrong. There are many people who go through that suffering and they don't come out on the other side thinking that there's not a God. In fact, they come out somewhere very, very different than that. When I was debating Dan Barker, I knew he would use that argument because he did in every debate. So I went into the children's hospital there in Columbia, South Carolina. And I was walking around the children's hospital and I was introduced to a lady. She was about 55 years old and she was volunteering there. She was uh, taking ice, I think, to the patient, something like that. And I started talking to her. And as I was talking to her, I asked her what she did here and she said she volunteered. I said, why do you volunteer at a children's hospital? She said, well, let me show you. And she bent down and she pulled her hair back and there was a, literally a hole in her skull about the size of a nickel. And she said, do you see that hole in my skull? It took me aback. I, I never had anybody d do anything like that. And she said, look right here. And she put her head down and, and showed me the hole in her, her skull. And I said, yes, ma'am, I, I see that. She said, I was in my living room and there was a drive-by shooting and a thirty-eight caliber bullet came through my living room and hit me in the back of the head. She said, I should be dead right now. I'm not. She said, I believe the Lord kept me alive and I believe I need to do everything I can to help other people in this world now and I'm at this children's hospital because I want to give back. She believed that the Lord was responsible for keeping her alive and that's why she was in that children's hospital volunteering. And I asked her the question, I said, would you say 
that most of the volunteers in this hospital, well, are they atheists? Are they believers? Are they religious of some Oh, she said far and away. Most, most every one of them in here would, would be Christians or definitely believers in God. Now, I don't say that to use it as any type of evidence to prove that God exists. Here's all I'm saying. There are people who go into children's hospitals on a daily basis. They're working right next to those children who are suffering and who are literally dying before they reach the ages of some of them, five, six, and seven. And that pain and that suffering, it doesn't cause those people to lose their faith in God. Dan Barker's wrong. You don't go into a children's hospital and see the suffering that those children are going through and immediately throw your hands up in the air and say, Psh, I guess there's no God. Because people do that all the time and they don't come out thinking there's no God. In fact, they use those situations to draw closer to God. Now you've been told that Christians have a problem describing and accounting for the suffering and the pain that's in this life. That's not true. Philosophically, if you were just to boil it down to brass tacks and say, does the fact that there's evil and pain in this world prove that there's no God? No, it doesn't. In fact, you could just as quickly say to the skeptic, okay, hold on just a second. You believe in the idea of atheistic evolution. You believe that we are here by blind chance processes. You go into a children's hospital and you see somebody volunteering their time. That person is going to get no benefit from the child that she is helping. That person is not going to be able to use that child to help them evolve to any higher plane. That person is not going to be able to get the benefit of passing on any genetic information from that child. That person is going to dump years of resources into a life that they, is no, that they know is going to end prematurely. Now account for the altruistic behavior and sacrifice of that volunteer on an evolutionary basis. You can't do it. You see, if you are a blind a product of blind chance random processes, there is no possible explanation for why you would help somebody to your detriment. You could, in a very real sense, say, go into any children's hospital and you see people sacrificing their resources for children that they know are going to die and you know there's a God. Truth is, you could do that. Let me explain to you what I mean by that. If you were just to break it down philosophically, if there was no God, you couldn't say that there's evil in this world. You couldn't say there's anything absolutely positively wrong. You don't have to take my word for that. A man by the name of William Provine. William Provine was delivering a Darwin Day lecture at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville. They have a celebration celebrating Darwin's Day, and it's become an atheistic evolutionary celebration. And William Provine was there. William Provine eventually had a brain tumor and was dying. It's from Cornell University. And they talked to William Provine about his statements and what he believed. He said, if you believe that there is no God, then you cannot say there's a foundation for moral or ethics, morals or ethics, and you can't say anything is evil or good, right or wrong. You just can't do it. C.S. Lewis understood this perfectly. In fact, as an atheist, he said his biggest problem was that the world just seemed so unjust. People just didn't seem to be getting what they deserved. There were innocent kids who were suffering. There were sinful people who were thriving and doing great. And he said, if there was a God, then why was there so much injustice in the world? And then he said, but hold on just a second. What is injustice? Where did I get that idea? 
He said, I started out blaming God for all the injustice in the world, but then I realized if there's no God, then there's no injustice. There's nothing that's right or wrong. He said, and I had to take a, a second look at what I was thinking, and he said, here's what I could have done. I could have said, you're, you know, you're right, there's no injustice. There's just a bunch of stuff I don't like. I just don't like for kids to get beaten. I just don't like for innocent people to suffer. It's not unjust. It's not morally wrong. I just don't like it. He said, I could say it was just a personal fancy of mine. Or I could say that, no, there really was some injustice in the world. But if I said there was really injustice in the world, that meant there had to be a standard. And he said, that meant really there had to be a God. He said, either it was a personal fancy of mine or God existed. And he said, ultimately, what I found out was atheism was too simple. It just couldn't explain the real injustice in the world. Now, you could put it in an argument form like this. If there is no God, absolute moral values do not exist. Evil exists. Evil is an absolute moral value. Therefore, God exists. You know, the irony of this whole discussion is simply this. That if there really is something wrong with the world, if there really is evil in the world, if there really is injustice in the world, there has to be a God. And that's a philosophical truth. Now, that's not how most of us think, though, is it? And here's what I mean by that. Most of us don't think in philosophical syllogisms. We don't sit around and think, well, if there is objective moral value, then... There must be a God. Evil is an objective. But that's not how we think. So you can do away with the philosophical problem. You can say, okay, on paper, you can't disprove God with the evil and the pain and suffering in this world. Okay, great, let's do it on paper. But that still poses a challenge to us, doesn't it? There's the emotional aspect. There's the way that we feel when we see it happening. It hurts. We see a hurricane hit a place and 3,000 people die. Hundreds of thousands of people lose their homes. We see a child that has cancer and has had cancer from the time they were three and now they're six and they've suffered all their life and they, and they die at age six with that cancer because of that cancer. And you say, yeah, yeah, I know what the paper says. I know what the, philosophically you can't disprove God. But, but why didn't he do something? Where is he when this stuff happens? Now, I'll tell you why. That's so powerful and so important for us to understand. Because we really do want to know if God loves us, where is he? I want you to go to your reading. Hebrews chapter 5. And I want you to look really close at verse 7. Now, for years I read Hebrews chapter 5. And I read verse 7 and then I read verse 8. And it really never dawned on me what was going on. We're asking the question, where is God when I hurt? And I want you to look at verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 5. And here's what the text says. Talking about Jesus Christ, it says, Who in the days of His flesh... When he offered up prayers and supplications with vehement cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death. Okay, now this is talking about a specific point in Jesus' life. 
When do you see Jesus offering up vehement cries and tears to God? You see that in the Garden of Eden. I mean, in the Garden of Gethsemane, rather. Just before His death, Jesus goes out into the Garden of Gethsemane and it says that His soul is suffering and anxious and He's falling down praying to God with... Now, the Hebrews text says, vehement cries and tears. And what does Jesus know about God? He is able to save Him. But what? Well, keep reading. Though, now keep reading. And was heard because of his godly fear. Okay, he's crying, screaming to God. The Son of God says, let this cup pass from me. He's praying to God and he knows God can do something. And then he realizes God hears him. And what? We know the rest of that story, don't we? Here's what I'm saying. Sometimes we forget the purpose of this life. And if you forget the purpose of this life, you are never going to understand why God allows you to suffer, why God allows others to suffer, why God allows the pain in this world. You're not going to understand it. You're going to misunderstand what's happening in this world. Because see, here's what we think is the purpose of life for the most part. Most of us think that we've kind of made a deal with God. And that God, if He keeps up His end, then we'll keep up our end. And in our minds, that deal with God is that if He lets us be comfortable, lets us be fairly prosperous, lets us have a a good relationship with our spouse, and lets us have kids, or whatever it is is on our list of things we think God's supposed to do for us, then if God will just do that, then we'll be fine worshiping Him and talking to others about Him. That's good. But we think... It's like God has us as, as kind of his little pets. You know, my, my son right now has a, a guinea pig. A guinea pig, it's, it's older right now for guinea pigs. It's eight years old. And this guinea pig, when you walk into my son's room, makes a little chirping sound if he needs some water or food. And he's got this little gruntle church chirping sound. And my son goes and checks and makes sure he's got plenty of food and water. And he's got little toys in his cage that he can play with. You know, we kind of think like that about our relationship with God. God, as long as you keep our cage clean, as long as you give us some treats and make sure we've got plenty of food and water, as long as we've got a toy or two in our little cage, then we're good. We won't scream at you. We won't get mad at you. We won't have any emotional problems with you. But if you don't let us live to be 75, 80 years old and let us be pretty comfortable, because that's what we're doing here anyway, then, hey, we're going to have issues with you. But, But hold on just a second. Who said that's what you're doing here? Who said that our purpose in this life is to live to be 80 years old and be comfortable for the most part and die in our sleep peacefully when we've gotten to see our grandchildren be successful at school? Is that the the bargain God ever made with you? No, it's not, is it? Because you see, the purpose of this life is not for us to be comfortable. Paul defines the perfect purpose of this life for us in Philippians chapter 1. When you go to Philippians chapter 1, you see that Paul is in prison. He has been chained with the palace guard, and he's actually pretty excited about it because there are lots of the palace guards that are becoming Christians because of his imprisonment. 
But then he says, I've been praying that I'm going to get out of here. And he says, I'm confident that that's going to happen. But he says, as I'm praying, I'm, I mainly want to focus on this, that with all boldness, so just like in the past, now also, Christ may be, may be magnified in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. He said, but if I live on in the flesh, that'll mean fruit for my labors. But what I shall choose, I can't tell because I'm hard-pressed between the two. Having the desire to part and be with Christ, which is far better. What's your purpose in this life? Your purpose in this life, according to Paul and according to Jesus, is to bring glory to God. Now, if you miss the purpose of life, you're always going to misunderstand pain and suffering. You know, I've got at my house, I've got a... Oh, it's a wrought iron piece of furniture. It sits in the corner of my kitchen. There's a wooden bowl in it. And that bowl has inside of it three beautiful green pears. Those pears look so delicious. They are there. And if we were to put those on the kitchen table and you were to walk in and you were to look at those pears, if you happen to like pears and you picked one of those pears up and you bit into it, depending on the way you think, you and I would immediately have a problem. If you came to me and said, Kyle, these pears are useless and they're terrible, you can't eat them, I'd say, oh, I know. And you'd look at that pear that you bit out of and it would be styrofoam. Because that pear's not to eat. That pear's decoration. In fact, they've been green now for about 10 years. They don't rot and they don't bring those little fruit flies. Because I'm using them for decoration. Well, I'm not. My wife is using them for decoration. Now, if you think the pear's purpose is for you to eat it and you bite into it and you can't, are you going to challenge the creator of the pear? Hey, why'd you give me a pear that doesn't eat? I can't eat this thing. Okay, now if you know it's for decoration and you realize it's styrofoam, are you going to be much more accepting of the pear? Yeah, because... You understand the purpose. You see, the reason that the atheist has such a problem with the pain and suffering that come into his life is because he cannot grasp the purpose of life because in his mind, this life is all there is. There's no afterlife. There's no ultimate justice. There's no ultimate reward for those people who do righteous and are innocent. This life is all that there is. And if you think this life is all that there is, you'll never understand the pain and suffering that's in this world. But, but if you reckon into the discussion, the idea that there's an afterlife, and that the point of this life is to prepare you for the next life, it's not going to make you like your suffering anymore. It's not going to make you sign up to volunteer for it. In fact, I have a good friend who went to school with me. His name is David Wright. David was always kind of a... Oh, as a freshman, you always got kind of aggravated with David. Because David, when we would sit in Greek class... I don't know if, if, if you've 
gone through any Greek classes at Freed. When I was there, Dow Flat was the Greek teacher. Now, just, just to let you know a little bit about Dow Flat, he explained to us students that one of his favorite pastimes, what he loved to do on a Friday night, was sit in a lazy boy chair in front of a fire and cuddle up with a good Bible commentary and fall asleep reading that Bible commentary. You know, as an as a 18-year-old freshman, that was lost on me. But Brother Flat, he had, he had a little gold tooth. It wasn't completely gold, it was just outlined in gold that, that hung over his bottom lip. And he would tell corny jokes that he loved. He would laugh at them himself. He would say, class, you know what happened when two silkworms got in a race? They ended up in a tie. Boy, I love Brother Flat, but he was a very hard teacher. In fact, he had a grading process that you had to make a 95 or above to make an A. Now, everything else was a 93 or above to make an A. And he would explain to us that, well, he could go down to make a 93 and above being A, but then he'd just have to make the class harder. So he just felt like a 95 and above would be fine. And his class was the hardest class that we had anyway. Now, I say all that to say... I didn't thrive, I didn't excel in Greek because in order to do that you would have to have spent more time than my social club, intramural sports and dating process would let me spend. And I just didn't get that done. But there was a guy sat in the back and and every time Brother Flat said, what is this word? Well, you know, you're supposed to break it down. That's the third heiress declension of phaneo, which means... None of us as freshmen would get it. But there was a guy who sat in the back of the class that got it every time. David Wright. And we loved David. We loved him so much. But he just made us all look so bad. Because he picked this stuff up. To him, language was easy to grasp. And it's probably because he studied tons more than we did. And David was blind. David had been blind for years and years. David, as a junior in high school and a senior, was blind, never played sports, never drove, never did lots of the things that you and I take for granted every single day. And the story was told to me about David that at camp one year on the junior-senior walk, they went for a walk and they We're going to tell all of the things that they were thankful for. And you would just say what you were thankful for. You would go around the circle. Some of the juniors, seniors said, I'm thankful for my friends, thankful for the school that I go to, thankful for this camp. They got to David. They asked David, David, what are you thankful for? He said, I'm thankful that I am blind. Because I see things that other people never will. Now, I heard that story about him, and I thought, no, he didn't. He didn't say that. Nobody says that. That's just too cliche. It's it's just too too perfect to use as an illustration. I heard a preacher use that as an illustration. I knew David. And I thought, no, surely he didn't say that. So I called him up. I said, David, I heard some guy use this illustration that you were at camp, and they went around and came to you and said, what are you thankful for? And you said, you were blind. I said, did you say that? He said, let me tell you something, Kyle. He said, if I got to pick, if I could choose, I would choose not to be blind. I'll tell you that right now. No question about it. He said, but yes, I did say that 
Because I've learned things being blind that I don't think there is any other way I could have learned them on this earth. Here's what I'm saying. You don't sign up for suffering. It's not like when God's passing out, you say, oh, that'll help me get stronger. Yes, sir, I'll take it. But the suffering that you go through is preparing you for something far greater. Now the atheists will never understand that. In fact, they don't even let it in the discussion. They say, well, you can't use the Bible to answer this problem of pain and suffering. Yeah, you can. Where did they get the problem? Where did they get the idea that God is a loving God? 1 John chapter 4, verse 8. Where did they get the idea that God is all-powerful? Numerous verses in the Bible, but go to Genesis chapter 17 where Abraham's talking about God. You are the almighty God. They framed the problem from the Bible. They're talking about the Bible God, but here's what they want to say. They want to say, okay, yeah, the Bible says God is all-powerful. The Bible says God is all-loving. But then they want to say, but you can't use the Bible to answer the question. Well, if you formulate the question from the Bible and you say, yeah, the Bible says God is all-loving. Yeah, the Bible says God is all-powerful, just like you just said. But what else does it say? You do get to use the Bible to answer the question. And when you do, you present the idea of an immortal soul. And it changes the purpose of this life. And then you go listen to Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. And then they're right there in chapter 5 where Paul says, For our light affliction is but for a minute, but it's working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Paul said, Are what kind of affliction? Light affliction. Oh yeah, uh... Did you read what Paul went through? Back in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, three times he was beaten with rods. He was whipped. He was a night and a day in the deep. When he wrote the book of Philippians, he was in prison. He was in stocks in Philippi after he had been beaten. Paul's light affliction, which was but for a moment. I would challenge you to look at the life of Paul and ask yourself if you've ever suffered an eighth of what he suffered. And Paul could say our light affliction is but for a minute and is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory? Yeah. Because he understood the purpose. I was interested to see the invitation song this morning. I hadn't talked to Bradley about this lesson, hadn't told him anything about what we were discussing man by the name of Horatio Spafford. He was a real estate investor in Chicago in 1871. He was a millionaire by our standards. If I understand it right, he had four children. Had a wife named Anna. The Chicago fire occurred. Maybe you have heard that children's song about Miss O'Leary leaving a lantern in the shed and the cow kicking it over. Uh, That's describing the Chicago fire of 1873. In that fire, most every thing in Chicago was touched in some way. Virtually everything that Spafford had burned to the ground. And so he wanted to make a new start. So he put his wife and his four daughters on a boat named the Villa de Havre. And he was sending them across the ocean and in a freak accident that boat was hit by another steam liner and about 226 of the people on that boat were killed. He heard about this. He received a telegram from his wife, Anna. It had 
words in the telegram, saved alone. His four daughters drowned in the ocean after that tragic accident. He quickly boarded a boat to go be with his wife. And as he was crossing the same stretch of ocean where his daughters had died, he wrote a poem. When peace like a river attends my way, when sorrows like sea billows roll, whatever my lot... Thou hast taught me to say, It is well with my soul. Horatio Spafford wrote the words, It is well with my soul, as he crossed the place in the ocean where his daughters had met their worldly end. But see, the reason he could write it as well with my soul is because he understood there was another aspect to life, a far more important aspect to life, a far more greater aspect to life, a far more eternal aspect to life. And he could write it's well with my soul because he understood that there's something after this. You see, if you miss that point, you'll never understand the pain and suffering that's going on in this world. But if you grasp that point... And I want you to listen to what the Bible says about Christ. He offered up those prayers to God who could save him. But listen to me, he didn't. Did he? God didn't let the cup pass from him. The Bible says he was heard. But God didn't step in and save Jesus. So where is God when you hurt? He's the exact same place he was when his son was crying to him. And the Bible says God heard him. But he let him suffer anyway. And you remember verse 8? Though he was a son, yet learned he obedience by the things he suffered. And having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who believe him. If it was good enough for Jesus Christ, it's good enough for me. Do you understand why God lets you go through everything? Maybe not. Not in the minutiae. Not why He lets this happen or why He lets that happen. But can you see how He could, just like He let His Son, because what is after this is far better. I think you understand that. Here's the problem. The problem is there in Hebrews 8... And being perfected, he became, the, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who believe him. That word belief there carries more than just a, a mere mental assent. That word belief there means a person who has understood, believed the story of Jesus with all their heart, and willing to obey Christ. Have you obeyed Christ? So that you could say it is well with your soul even when going through the most serious suffering that you could even imagine? Because if you have not been baptized into Christ, been added to His family, there's no possible way you can honestly, truly say it is well with my soul. You need to respond to the invitation of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and let Him 
give suffering in your life meaning. If you do, I hope you will, as we stand and as we sing. My way, way.